0: seated. I don't know about you, but my heart's full this morning. It's a good time to be together as we have heard the word sung, prayed, testified to, to through scripture or through testimonies, and now we open up the word of the Lord, and we find ourselves again in the book of Acts, and uh, invite you to turn there to Acts chapter 23, we'll look at one verse in 22, but we're really focusing on chapter 23. And as you turn there, let me just remind you that this section of Scripture that we find ourselves in as we are on the closing weeks of of journeying through the book of Acts, chapters 21 through 28 really are one whole narrative. It's one story detailing how the gospel would be taken to the center of the imperial world, namely Rome, that Rome would be the launching point by which the gospel would be dispersed to the ends of the earth. And last Sunday, we, we examined chapters 21 through 22, where Paul arrived in Jerusalem, but who quickly found himself in a perilous situation. See, false information had spread about Paul. Words were going around saying that, that Paul was against the Jews. He was against their law, and he was against their temple. And so when Paul came and, and he was seen in public, we, we saw that he was quickly rushed out of the temple. The gates were shut, and a mob of people began beating Paul with intending to beat him to death. But in God's goodness, God's providence... Roman soldiers came to his rescue, an unlikely source of rescue, but a rescue nonetheless. In God's providence, the Roman soldiers were used to keep Paul alive, and they actually brought him forth, put him before all the people who were about to kill him, and allowed Paul to give a defense of the gospel. Nevertheless, Paul, after giving his defense, giving his testimony of how he came to Christ, This was the response of the Jews in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Whoa. That was the response of one who says, I have seen the risen Lord. Again, in God's providence, The Romans tribune brought him into the barracks and were about to flog him, beat him, much like Christ was beaten with whips. But Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. And that Roman citizenship rescued him from a flogging. In fact, it would have been illegal for uh, the Roman soldiers to whip him, for it's illegal for Roman citizens to be beaten without a fair trial, without a hearing first. And so you see at the very end, verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune, the head of the soldiers, was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He was to do due diligence, find out who this figure was. And he hadn't done so when he was about to break the law And in fact, the law said this, you might find it interesting, that any Roman official who puts to death or flogs a Roman citizen contrary to his right of appeal or order, any of the above-mentioned things will be done to him. So in other words, you do this to Paul, you bound him without giving him process, well, this will be done to you. Therefore, last week we examined that Paul's, like through this journey of being almost put to death, almost beaten severely, but yet he keeps his cool, he keeps his composure, because he knew he was submitting himself to the will of the Lord that he knew that the Lord was going to use these circumstances for the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul didn't protest, Paul didn't kick and scream. No, he willingly went, moved forward, kept his composure, and was given opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Well, we could actually continue tracing that theme this morning, and in fact, I encourage you to do so, but I'm going to invite us to look at the passage just at a slightly different angle this morning, just to kind of keep it fresh, but also to highlight kind of the emphases of each chapter. Here in verse 30, as we're we're going to come to now, we're going to see that the tribune is, is perplexed. Who is this Paul? He's a Pharisee, he's a Jew, but yet his people reject him. And not only that, but he is a Roman citizen. Who is this? And so in verse 30, we see on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, meaning Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set them before him. Here's what's going on, the tribune, the lead Roman official who oversees these soldiers, he his interest in Paul is perked. And he wishes to know with certainty why Paul is being accused. In fact, Luke kind of writes this in such a way that this should be the question that we're asking this morning. Why is Paul really being accused? Is it that he's against the Jews and against their law and against this temple, or is there some other element behind this? Before we answer that question, I want to pose the question to us. If someone wanted to know with certainty what we're really about, if someone wanted to know with certainty what you really live for, what would they learn? If someone wanted to know, why do you get up in the morning? What makes you tick? Why do you gather here on Sunday mornings? What would you say? Alberta? yet, what would they glean from your life Monday through Saturday? What would you say? This morning, Paul is going to distill the hope of Christianity into one sentence. And I want you and I to consider if this would be how our lives reflect and would this be our confession if someone were to ask what is it with you we come in our text and we've seen the tribunal has gotten this meeting together and, and jump down to chapter 23 and we see here paul's before the sanhedrin In an effort to get to the truth the tribune gets this meeting together the sanhedrin are the highest assembly in jerusalem This is the ruling body, the the supreme legislative body of leading citizens. This is the who's who of Jerusalem. This is filled with different leaders, chief priests, council members, Sadducees, Pharisees. These are the leaders of Jerusalem, and Paul is standing before them. And Paul is given a chance to speak to these leaders, and you see in verse uh, 1, looking intently at the council. There is a confidence here in Paul. He's standing before this tribunal. No doubt they're probably up on a stage sitting on chairs. They're all in very official garments, probably white robes. And Paul is sitting on the floor, and he stares up at them, and he looks without intimidation. And he says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience up to this day what's Paul doing? Paul's appealing to his motives. You've called into question my motives. You say I'm against you, You're, that I'm against the law, that I'm against the temple, that I oppose everything that is Jewish. He goes, let me tell you my conscience is clear. I have lived my life in conformity to the will of God up to this day. But I want you to notice Paul doesn't get too far. Look in verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike Paul on the mouth. So he says, I'm, I'm standing before you with good conscience, hey, you, and go, boom. Paul, without missing a beat, says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> Whoa. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Oh, you're the ones who are supposed to be obeying the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you're beating me. Oh, there's so much irony here in this passage. It's interesting, these officials, these bodyguards, I, I don't know, mob like guys. They stood by, they they replied to Paul, would you revile God's high priest? Paul says in verse 5, well, I I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. What's going on here? I admit, this is kind of a perplexing passage. First of all, Paul rebukes those who are sitting above him calling them into question their their, uh, ability to obey the law. He calls them whitewashed tombs. This phrase is actually used by Jesus, speaking of the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed in the sense that they are clean on the outside, but they're full of dead man's bones. They're hypocrites. But the exact term comes from Ezekiel chapter 13, where false prophets are denounced who mislead God's people, who say there's peace and peace and security. And in fact, they had built a wall around Jerusalem saying there's peace and peace, and they had painted it white. And the reason they painted it white was to to hide the blemishes of the wall, because it was a wobbly wall. And when God's judgment was coming and the foreign nations were going to come, that white wall was just going to come tumbling down. And so it became kind of a, a code word, a slang word to, to call someone a whitewashed wall was you're a hypocrite. Oh, you look good on the outside, but you're just going to tip over. You're full of hot air. Well, I'd be an equivalent in our day. So it's a rebuke of hypocrisy. But I want you to know that Paul's posture here is a posture of trust. Here it is, submitting to the will of God, a trust. And, and he doesn't stand up and, and whack, I'll take you one. You know, let's go. Let's duke it out. Paul says he's a boxer to the Corinthians. He doesn't do that. No, he actually puts it up to the vengeance of God. He understands vengeance is mine, says, Lord, I will repay. And he just reminds him, you will get yours on the day of judgment. But then there's this exchange. Would you revile the high priest? And Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. High priest is the ruling individual over the people of Israel. This is as close as they get to king since the the fall of of Israel and, and being ruled over the Roman Empire. High priest at this time is Ananias, and he is known as a ruthless individual. He's actually known for having his thugs go into people's homes and beat them to get tithes from them. And so it's not ironic at all that he would have someone go, go hit him. Now the question is, does Paul really know who this high priest is or does he not? I say, well, it says he doesn't know. And I, I, I tend to say that, but it, it could be an ironic kind of slap in the face. Oh, I, I didn't know, based on your morals, that he was high priest. <laughs> kind of a shot. Hey, you're breaking the law. But it also could be Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem for quite some time. He doesn't recognize the high priest. A lot of these individuals have been sitting and you couldn't have distinguished them. Some have gone so far, John Stott saying, suggesting this is kind of speculative, that Paul's eyesight was bad. And, and so all these men wearing a white uh, coats actually look like a whitewashed wall. And they all stood up there and he couldn't tell one from the other. But here's the point that I think Luke wants us to know. I, I don't know exactly. I, I lean more towards Paul really didn't know rather than ironic, kind of a, a witty response. But both ways is actually the same. Paul's quoted Scripture twice to them. And Luke wants us to see that they indeed are not worthy of the title by which they bear. Well, that didn't go so well, so Paul has a second attempt. Well, let's look at that, verse 6. He's still before this council. He's tried to cordially begin the story, probably similar to how he began in, in chapter 22, verse 1, where he says, brothers and fathers, heal my defense. Well, he only got the first sentence out before he got whacked in the face. So he, he knows, I don't have much time here. and So he's going to get right to it, and this is where we're going to get the answer. What is it? that is going on with Paul? What is he really on trial for? And so in verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, these are two religious sects and leaders of, of the Jews, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And here it is. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul goes at this a different way. I'm not against you. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. I've been trained. And and we saw that last week that he, he was trained at the foot of Gamaliel chapter 22. You can see his whole testimony. But he gets there and he says, I'm one of you guys. You know my heritage. You know my lineage. And let me tell you what I'm here really on trial for. It's the hope of the resurrection. Hope of the resurrection of the dead. Is that how you would have answered? Someone says, why do you gather on Sunday morning? Why do you live for the Lord? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Do you say, for the hope of the resurrection of the dead? I don't want to let you know why that is such a powerful statement that really just sums up who we are as Christians. Paul is appealing to the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection. If you go on in verse 7, and when he had said this, dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why? Because the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. What's going on there? The Sadducees, they they were kind of anti-supernatural in some respects. I don't have time to really detail this group, but what we do recognize is they do not adhere to the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees had aligned themselves with the Roman officials. The Roman government were kind of like, hey, this is how it is. We'll live with it. Now, it's a little misleading, at least at first glance, that they don't believe in angels or a spirit. The idea isn't that they don't believe in the spiritual world or they don't believe in angels, but what they're talking about is the intermediate state. They don't believe that when you die that that there's this intermediate spiritual state, and, and sometimes people are known as angels or spirits, and referencing Paul's appearance or um, the appearance of Christ before Paul. They think that whole thing's bogus. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, acknowledge them all. So there's a division here, okay? And Paul's appealing to the Pharisees, who were known as the strictest sect among Judaism that they believe the Scriptures, they believe in the resurrection. In fact, that's what they would say as well. Oh, the reason that we live and the reason we tick is for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, well, me too. Me too. What's he talking about? Earlier in the service, we read from Ezekiel chapter 37 where we saw the, the vision of the valley of dry bones. That is one of the promises that Israel would have laid hold of. They recognize themselves uh, in this allegory, this illustration that the nation is dried up. There is no glory. There is no life in them. That they are a nobody people. But one day God is going to raise them from the dead. The book of Daniel, Daniel speaks of the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. You might just want to write that scripture down. Daniel 12, 1 through 2. Daniel, recording the prophecy, says, At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who is has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel looks forward to the day in which, after the trouble of this world, that the Lord is going to resurrect mankind. There's kind of a, a positive element, and a negative element. Those who are written in the book of life, they're going to be resurrected to everlasting life, but those whose names are not found in the book will be thrown into everlasting contempt. John. Uh, gives this picture in Revelation chapter 21. The great, great white throne, those whose names are not found written in the book, will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's a resurrection, though. You might not even think about that. Everybody will be resurrected on the last day. Every dead person will be resurrected, and they will face the Lord. This promise was for Israel. But the good news for us is that through Christ, we are included in the hope of Israel. Did you know that? We read the Valley of Dry Bones and he speaks about uh, breathing life into them and his spirit will come in them and their bones will rattle and they'll have flesh upon them. Well, you know what? We just heard about a bunch of stories where dead bones were made alive. That that prophecy is coming to life is every person who wakes up and their eyes are open, their ears are open, they hear the gospel. This is what Paul told the Corinthians when he came and preached to them. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Okay, what was it? Which you received, which when you, uh, <clears throat> in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you. He says, for I delivered to you of first importance, okay? I want you to hear this. What is of first importance? Meaning what's the primary message? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Let me remind you of our hope. Christ died and he rose again. Verse 32 of that chapter, Paul appeals to them and he says, If the dead are not rise, well, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, the resurrection's the linchpin. If you don't have the resurrection, what are we doing this for? The resurrection's our hope. The resurrection's our goal. That's what we're living for. And if it isn't true, well then let's just stop wasting time. Because if we're going to die one day, might as well live it up while we can. Our resurrection is also connected to the resurrection of the creation. We sometimes think the resurrection of the dead just means we're going to be beamed up to heaven, Scotty beam me up type thing, Star Trek or something like that. I don't know what you think. But sometimes we just think of this, I go up there and now I'm going to be stuck on some cloud playing a harp forever. No, that sounds awful. Paul, writing to the Romans, is encouraging them with the hope of the resurrection. If you want, you can turn there, Romans chapter 8. And what he's appealing to is that we all are longing for resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following, I want you to hear how he intertwines our resurrection, and I want you to see the resurrection of this earth. Paul goes on and he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's glory that's going to come to us. It doesn't compare to what we see now. And he goes, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Did you see that? This earth is waiting for our resurrection. Why? Well, he goes on and he tells us, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Do you ever groan? Yeah, Charlie's like, yeah, I groan. Yeah, I groan too. The whole creation groans, it's called earthquakes, it's called volcanoes, it's called tornadoes, it's called sickness and disease. The whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, amen? For we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Notice what Paul's saying. Our hope is the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. And that's exactly what Israel was hoping for, that God would resurrect the nation, and in accordance with that, there would be a new creation. Isaiah calls it that "a new heavens and a new earth." And Paul says, "This is what I'm on trial for. This is what I am under accusation of. and now it's kind of odd. That's not what they were saying. But he says, let me just get to the chase. This is what I'm all about. Is that what we would say? In talking to us, would people gather that our hope is the resurrection? That's what I want to know. When we evangelize, do we offer people the hope that is available in Christ, namely resurrection? I think sometimes we look at scenarios and we're like, there There's no hope for this. There's medical complications. There's there's consequences of other people that are complicating this. This isn't like believe in Jesus and all your problems just go away. But what we say to them is, I have hope for you. It's called the resurrection. One day, not only you, but this whole earth will be resurrected in glory. That's the hope that we offer. When people see our lives, do they see that our hope is not in this world? When I was in seminary and attended a church called Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, my immediate pastor, his name was Rick Holland, and I remember him telling this story um, about he and his family during wildfire season. And we, we went through this every year, and there would be people in our church, because you've seen like on the news when LA's like on fire, it literally is. You think it's snowing outside? You know, it's 100 degrees, and it looks like it's snowing. It's just ash falling in your car. You gotta swipe it off with a little duster and all that type of stuff. You literally, you'll be driving at night, and there's just a glow around the whole city. Well, you know where neighborhoods are? They're in the hills. And this one, and you know, one particular time, the, the fires were coming, and they evacuated our pastor's neighborhood. And he said, "All right, so we, we got our our things together." And he goes, it really wasn't much. We, we got the stuff in the safe, you know, the fireproof safe, all the birth certificates, passports, that type of thing. And, you know, we got a change of clothes, hopped in the car, and, and we were going to the hotel. He said, but it struck me as I'm looking at all my neighbors. They've got the U-Haul trailers. They are pulling everything that they possibly can out of their homes. And he says there was utter chaos. Why? that's where their hope was they were about to see their hope go up in smoke and i've always been struck by that because it made me think where's my hope and oftentimes i can find where my heart is really gripped when it's close to going up in smoke When it looks like it's about to be pulled out from under me, or something's going to be taken away from me, how do I respond? Well, that's where you'll find where your hope is. But I don't know about you, but I want my hope to be where moth and rust cannot destroy, to build up treasure in heaven. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, I'm, I'm putting my hope in the resurrection of the dead resurrection of this earth Well, this caused problems pharisees and sadducees split and they're fighting over all this and so verse 10 when the dissension came violent i mean hey these are supposed to be the leaders of israel so now there's a fist fight and paul's in the middle of it and so some are saying hey he's done nothing wrong what you know what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him and they're and they're some of them are even contemplating, well, maybe we should give this man a hearing. But others, no. And so there is fighting, tugging, noogies. You know, I don't know what's going on. But the tribune, who's probably standing at the, at the back of the room trying to look upon and discern what is rightly happening, he says, oh, no, this is going bad and afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them commanded the soldiers, go down, take him away from among them by force, and bring him into the barracks. This is round two that Paul's delivered from death, from a mob trying to kill him and each other this time. Here's where I want you to see. We've been talking about the hope of the resurrection. I want you to see in verse 11, it's because he is a proclaimer of this hope that the Lord stands by him. So the following night, he's in the barracks, and the Lord stood by him. Isn't that comforting? We should be thinking, we're the people who hope in the resurrection, the Lord stands by us." The Lord said to him, "Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. These guys aren't going to be able to stop the message of the resurrection. It's not going to happen. And what I want us to consider as a church, I want you to consider even as an individual. Where's your hope? Yes. But see that it is those who carry this message that the Lord stands by. We can think of it collectively where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're gonna see the gates of hell trying to prevail here. And you're gonna see it's futile. And where I want to encourage us as a church is that we are people, we are a church that is about the resurrection of the dead. That everything we're doing, people are hearing it. That when they talk to us, that we're saying, you know what? It sounds crazy, but I'm banking on resurrection. I mean, I was contemplating this week, I don't talk like that to people. Sometimes we say, you know, Jesus, Jesus loves me. That's good. I don't say that's wrong. But there's more to it. And And the thing that kind of seals the deal is the resurrection. So let's see what happens. Roman soldiers have saved Paul. And this part isn't going to take as long, but I want you to just see how futile the world's dealings against this message are. When it was day, the Jews made a plot plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now, I don't know about you, but that's scary. How would you like to find out there's 40 people who have vowed never to eat again until you're dead? Because that's what's happened. And this isn't just anybody. These are the movers and shakers in the city, and they can pretty much do whatever they want. And so they went, so we're seeing this plot, there's there's an irrational oath, there's 40 conspirators, and now look at the plan, verse 14. When they went to the chief priests and the elders, they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. Uh, maybe a better idea is more carefully. We're, we want to we address Paul more cordially. We want to we do this right. He got a little out of hand. You just tell him you want to make it right, and we're going to really listen this time. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So I imagine they've come to the to the the meeting, the council. I said, what do you think, guys? I said, that sounds like a great idea. Now watch how their plans derailed. Now the son of Paul's sister heard heard of their ambush. That word son is actually youth. I'm imagining someone in their five to eight years old Now, I have no idea how this little boy heard of their plan. Maybe one of the the men was not eating dinner that night. And this little boy said, Daddy, why why aren't you eating dinner? I'm not eating until Paul is dead. This troubler you've heard of. Okay, Daddy. Goes out and plays, whatever you play in these days. A group of boys. Are your daddies eating? Yeah, my daddy's not till Paul's dead. And one of those boys happens to be Paul's nephew. I don't know. I'm making up that story, but you can see. I don't know, but the 40 of the most influential men in the city have conspired to kill him, and this little boy's gonna bring him down. What? And so that's exactly what happens. So we entered the barracks and told Paul, halt right there. This little boy has access to the barracks. And what is really going on is that Paul has a good reputation with his soldiers. Paul's just living with the soldiers. He's unbound. He's living in a room. We have this picture. He's probably in jail. No. The little boy comes in and says, hey, Paul, I want to talk to you. There's there's no problem here. He's just being under protection. And the boy came and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, hey, take this young man and tell the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took the boy, brought him to the tribune. This is the head official. And said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. And he has something to say. So the tribune took him by the hand and was going to the side to ask him privately. and says, okay, little boy, what do you have to say? I mean, you can kind of see it like this. And the boy says this the jews have agreed to ask you to bring paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him and now they are waiting for your consent i mean he got more than probably that little scenario that i just created right i don't know what he was doing his ball rolled into the wrong room and he overheard it. I have no idea, but he's got the information. And so the tribune dismissed the young boy and charged him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Let's keep the secret. I want you to see what happens. Jamin, we will sing, so you're fine. Alright? Then tribune called two of the centurions. Get ready, 200 soldiers. Boom. Oh, these 40 dudes. Not going to be a problem. With 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. 470 people. A little overkill, but um, okay. Maybe he doesn't know how many is involved. And, And go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Oh, also provide mounts, that's donkeys, for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. They're treating Paul like he is the emperor himself. He's going to have his own entourage. And by the way, he's probably going to want a selection of different type of donkeys. when, When his rear hurts sitting on one, give him another one. They're rolling out the red carpet for him like he is a ruler of majesty. You need to bring him to Felix the governor. And not only that, he writes an official letter vouching for Paul. Look at the letter. He begins by giving his name, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. This is huge. Luke's detailing an official Roman soldier of the empire saying, this man does nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him so the soldiers do what he said. They arrive at Antipatris, which is about 30 miles from Jerusalem. Caesarea was 70 miles or 75 miles. It's about halfway there. They make it far enough and on the next day they return to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with them. So the 70 horsemen took him the rest of the way. The other 200 soldiers or 400 soldiers go back. And when they come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and they presented Paul also before him. He read it, and he asked what province he was from, and he learned that Paul was um, from Cilicia. And he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Let me just tell you about Felix. Felix once was a slave himself, and now he's the governor over this jurisdiction of Caesarea. And kind of one of these guys who cut from rags to riches, he's got a chip on his shoulder. And he wields the sword. He exercises his authority just a little bit more with a little more swagger because he has risen up from the bottom all the way up. He has done some horrible things and he has actually created more tension between himself and the Jews. The irony is is that the Jews hate Felix and now they have to go to someone who doesn't want to work with them to accuse somebody they want killed. Ain't gonna happen. Notice that last part of the verse. And Felix commanded him, meaning Paul, to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. You know where that is? That's the headquarters. Paul's being put up in a palace with all the soldiers, the elite, the Navy SEALs, if you want to put it that way. Nobody's getting in there. And he says, and I'm going to give you a hearing. And then they're not going to be able to do anything As the guys in the band come up to lead us in song, I want you to think what confidence that brings us as we just look at that. You ever imagine what scenarios have been plotted against this church, against you, against the church abroad, and have been derailed by something as surprising as a little boy overhearing the plans? This should give us hope that our God is alive. And that when we come on behalf of his name, preaching the resurrection, we come with power. And the reality is that Paul didn't need the 470 soldiers. There were legions of angels under God's protection and power. And God had the kings and the officials and the rulers all in his hand, able to turn even their sinful, selfish desires to work according to his purposes. So what does that mean for us? We hope in the resurrection, and we ain't scared of anybody as we go and tell the world, okay? So with that in mind, let's stand, and we're going to sing that new song, He Will Hold Me Fast, and know that he can and will hold us fast.